When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The Matthew Wright Show on Crucible of Broadcast Excellence. Talk Radio. Put it on and keep it on. Too busy to catch us on the afternoons on Talk Radio. Too many children to care for. Too many jobs to manage. Well, never fear. Help is here in the shape of the Matthew Wright Podcast, where we cut down three hours of entertainment and enlightenment every afternoon into tiny, bite-sized morsels just for you, you busy so-and-so. So sit back and enjoy the best of the Matthew Wright Show here on Talk Radio. Over the years, we've hated the Jews, we've hated the Belgians, we've hated the French, the Italians, the Belgians again, the Jews again. We've hated the Irish and all manner of peoples in between. Who will be our next bogeyman? I'm going to turn for advice to Dr Andrew Smith, Senior Lecturer in Contemporary History and Politics at the University of Chester. He joins us now. Good afternoon, Andrew. Hi there, thanks, Matthew. Absolute pleasure, and uh, I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. Um... I mean, going, going way, way back uh, beyond contemporary history to this uh, 320 BC, and um, of course, when this Greek visitor arrived in these shores, we hadn't yet, I would imagine, have been invaded by the Romans, the Saxons, the Vikings, or indeed the French. Uh, no, indeed, no. Um, <laughs> I think once you stretch back right into those histories of a, a kind of real island nation, then that's going to give you those ideas of, of isolation, of uh, kind of simplicity, those ideas of a kind of nation which really was a very inward-looking place in a world which obviously was extremely difficult, uh, different from today. Now, am I right in thinking it was the French, when they took control 1066, who opened the doors to Jewish people being one of the few groups allowed to lend money, which in turn led, combined with religious bigotry, to resentment towards them? Yeah, I mean, I think ideas of religious bigotry have never been far from uh, far from the uh, agenda um, ever since we started protecting organised religion. Um, I think especially you can see that with um, the history of uh, the way that Europe has persecuted Jews um, since, you know, we've heard recently on Holocaust Memorial yes, Day, yes. Uh, the extremely long history um, of uh, persecution that, that Jews have faced in Europe, you know, from the medieval era onwards with pogroms and more. I think, you know, one of the interesting things is looking at those moments of opening, as you say. Um, you can talk about 1066. You can move yeah. it really forward as well. Go on, um, go on. Even People talked about 1066. They talked about Waterloo when we opened the Channel Tunnel rail line. Um, 
And I think you have people there suddenly mentioning ideas of do we want to be connected to Europe and all the rest. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, we were physically connected. I mean, the fact that the tunnel was under the ground, which actually connected us to the continent anyway, seems seems to have not paid any attention to that at all. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the really important things, I think. When you look at the coverage of that, there was a lot of discussion. Again, Waterloo, 1066 and all the rest of it. There was a wonderful quote. I looked up um, The Observer, covered the opening of that. Of course, the train came into Waterloo. Um, and there was one train spotter who made a really important point, I think. He said that boundaries do not a civilization make. It's about shared values and shared history. And I think that was a really important thing that spoke to the idea that it wasn't about petty old jealousies or ideas of nation states and all the rest of it. It was finding moments to actually link each other together. That's a really important thing to think about, I think. We could talk about you know, Britain's role in the world, whether it be Dean Acheson talking about the idea that Britain had lost an empire but failed to find a role where Britain's kind of strategy lies as this kind of pivot between uh, Europe and the Atlantic. You know, that was something that Harold Macmillan recognised when he thought we could be the Greeks to um, the Americans, Romans, that we could kind of present a sort of more open vision to the world. Um, so I think there's something in that as well that we need to find really a, a message for where the opportunities for connectivity remain. Um, well, you can probably guide us then through the, the, the story, a, a brief history of, of the hope that arrived with the joining the common market referendum and then 47 years later to the joy that comes with departing it. Yeah, it's a tough one. I think you can look at that sort of uh, difficult moment. Of course, I mentioned Macmillan and we did yep. uh, first uh, attempt to, um, to join in, in 62. We, of course, faced um, vetoes from de Gaulle. That's where you see those kind of traditional uh, enmities. Against, yes, um, very French, much so. Um, the kind of old enemy and all the rest of it. Um, I think important to realise as well when we talk about this, we're not just talking about England, but actually about a broader Britain as well. Whereas um, England might talk about old enemies, you can probably tell from my accent, um, the Scots might talk about old alliances. Yes. Um, so important to see where there's variance across that as well. Um, of course, we saw a, a real change around the referendum in 75 about remaining in the, uh, the European um, economic community as it, uh, after we joined in 73, um, about whether or not it was going to be a sort of bosses Europe, whether it was going to be a kind of capitalist club. Uh, and actually, that's where we see that reversal of roles, really, with the Conservatives pushing to join and Labour pushing to leave. Sorry, I was going to say, I mean, I, I've got a real um, a, a perverted kink, actually, of an interest in 60s <laughs> politics. Um, the sort of Macmillan Aglis, uh, and Alec Douglas Hume never, you know, never had it so good and Christine Keir and all of that. But I've never been able to ask someone, I'm going to do it now to you, the, the knockbacks from de Gaulle, I mean, we, we had two, and I think it was says, with bells on, really. I mean, he, he, he made it very clear it was personal, de Gaulle. But I've never asked, do you think, in, in part, our, or certainly our politicians, Westminster's desire to join the common market was driven in part by a desire to get one over on de Gaulle, to, to refuse to have him keep us out? <laughs> um, I, I, well, I couldn't speak. Perhaps for sure. national basis, there might be some uh, some enmity there. But I think you know the idea of wanting to join was based on um, very tangible and practical economic benefits. And um, one of the reasons that Macmillan sought to join was really because he was putting realism ahead of any kind of nostalgic commitment. Yes, yes. Um, those vetoes were based around really, I think, a reasonable assessment of what uh, Britain wanted to be, that kind of pivot role between the United States uh, and Europe. The very thing we're looking at again now, really. Exactly, yeah. And I think that's the challenge now, because those have always been, since, uh, since the 60s at least, the twin pillars of our strategy in Europe and the Atlantic. And I think if you look at very recent politics, the last week or two, 
and we're already seeing ways in which those can be quite shaky. Yes, yes, indeed. The Matthew Wright Show on Talk Radio. There have been uh, 9,755 cases uh, in China and 213 deaths and about another 213 uh, or another 80 or so cases around the world. Uh, As you you like to point out, Matthew, and you're right. Medicinenet.com, 660,000 deaths uh, globally from the flu. From the regular flu. From regular flu, which means, uh, by my calculations, you're more than 3,000 times more likely to die from the flu than you are from coronavirus. Yes, indeed. So joining us now uh, is the Professor of Medicine at the University of East Anglia, Paul Hunter. Hello, Paul. Hi, how are you? Afternoon. Now, given those statistics that we've just uh, said about the 660,000 people who die from flu, uh, are we overreacting to coronavirus? Well, it's, it's, it's one of these uh, catch-22 situations, really, isn't it? That um, if you uh, um, uh, play it uh, down and then it gets worse than you expected, you end up in problems. And if you address it vigorously then uh, people say well you're overreacting so i mean my my impression is that at the moment we are not overreacting and the reason for that is that certainly in the early stages of the outbreak and maybe even now there was the possibility of it stopping it spreading around the world now those figures you quoted for influenza actually relate to uh, what's called a pandemic year yeah not a, an average year of influenza. So, and we only really get a pandemic year once every 30 years yeah. or so. So, um, yes, it, um, uh, there will be less um, deaths from uh, this disease, uh, undoubtedly, than we've had with the last pen- pandemic influenza, which was 2009. But um, if you actually get the infection then the death rate in people who develop the infection, particularly develop the uh, infection bad enough to, to need hospitalisation, um, is, is about 2%, which is about uh, 10 to 100 times more likely than, than influenza. I think, I think I'm right, Paul, in saying that uh, the official uh, alert is we've gone from very low risk to low. Uh, yeah. I accept what you say, that the government must be seen to be vigilant in everything that it does and other governments around the world. But the more they are vigilant, you know, flying people back, putting them into quarantine, that does tend to uh, sort of trigger panic yes. among the people, yes. doesn't it? Is that the sort of catch-22 we're stuck in, in your assessment yeah absolutely and it, it is it, it you know it must be said that not everybody thinks that um quarantining is appropriate um from an infectious disease point of view the um you know it it may well have been um um you know uh, better to support our nationals uh while they're there but I think the the issue, certainly with the quarantine, uh, but certainly if we did that, then you know there are lots of psychological, mental health issues with being stuck in isolation, miles away from home, that you know could have uh, quite serious mental health consequences for the people affected. Paul, can I just ask you something in terms of um, is it similar to kind of traditional flu, where those people who are kind of already immune immunosuppressed are they most likely to die? Are they the ones that actually can, we can need I, to be? Can I just ask her before you answer that? Yeah, Paul, are you, Deborah, immunosuppressed from your cancer drugs? Yes, I am, and okay, that's why I'm okay. asking. Actually, <laughs> Good um, question. from a, from a very personal <laughs> perspective, because you know we know that the risks associated 
associated with the deaths obviously go up. Are we seeing that? Is that the same trend in this? It, uh, undoubtedly. And I mean, if, uh, if you look at the deaths that have occurred, or at least the ones that I've um, been able to see um, information on, which is yeah. nowhere near all by any means, um, they tend to be either very uh, relatively old, they tend to be, and particularly over 70s, over 80s, are, uh, uh, seem to be the majority of these. Um, in, uh, the death rate drops, as you've, um, and particularly if you go below 60, there are very relatively few deaths. In Unlucky, Kevin. Unlucky. Yeah, I know, that puts yeah. me in trouble, Paul. Can, uh, yeah, it puts me in trouble. But, uh, uh, in terms of the fatality... Sorry, 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 Paul, just finish off. Yeah, yeah. yeah but those, those younger people who do dying, by and large, have another problem. They've either got diabetes... Yeah, comorbidities. Disease, and, um, and certainly people on quite a lot of immunosuppressive... Uh, anti-cancer drugs might might also fall into that category. Does that mean, yeah. Deborah, that you are bearing in mind that flu also uh, would affect someone on immunosuppressing drugs? Yeah. Are you at a higher level? I mean, how can I ask you? Are you I at a higher a level panicked. of anxiety than you I are did. usually? I did. I got a bit panicked. And seeing that big plane coming in, it suddenly raises this level. And well, is, well, that, does, yeah. is that actually... It's really interesting because you see, I look at it and I think, I, I feel strong, it's the flu, you know, it, it's not going to... It's just like the flu, it's not going to get me. But I, I really... For me, you. it's totally different. For me, I see, even though it's two cases, I know rationally I shouldn't be worried, I am. The Matthew Wright Show on Talk Radio. Just behind Dale Boy and Rodney in the Comedy Gold Annals is that other legendary Only Fools and Horses duo, Marlene and Boise, the world's worst married couple. What a thrill then to welcome to the studio the brilliant Sue Holderness, who turned Marlene into an hilariously vulgar but very likeable character. Not, of course, to the great John Chalice, who did exactly the same to Boise. Marlene. <laughs> who can forget? But Sue is here today to talk about her real-life role as an ambassador to the uh, Royal Air Force Benevolent Fund, which today launches its Join the Search, Change a Life campaign. Uh, first though, Sue, you know, as the last of the few Paul Farns died at age 101 on Wednesday, it must have brought back memories of your own uh, links to uh, the RAF and to the uh, to the uh, Battle of Britain. I, yes, I think you sure, have relatives who fought in it. Your your listeners will probably be quite confused at this little Cockney tart Marlene. No, no, you're one of those uh, <laughs> you're one of those people whose accident in real life is always a shock, it's just a like John's. I know it's a terrible disappointment, but I can do Marlene if you like. Yeah, but no, no, my connection is that my dad and two of his brothers all flew in the war from the beginning to the end. It's a sort of remarkable thing that they all survived. And um, did you, did you, have an, you had an uncle who went up six times in a single day, didn't you? It, yes, it was. I was allowed to go to Northolt and they took me through what exactly what they had all done from the beginning to the end of the war. And there were times in the Battle of the Britain when John, the the Battle of Britain pilot, did he was scrambled seven times. Can you imagine seven that was like times, seven times in a day? Go out. I mean, they were all such young men, and you'd go out and and, and face the enemy, come back, refuel, go out, face the enemy. Can and you imagine every time doing, wondering whether or not you'd come back, knowing that the life expectancy of a pilot at that stage was six weeks. So you know, you, what. What, what did they have that gave them that bravery, that, that, that ability just to keep doing it? It's just extraordinary. Um, so uh, who better than you to be uh, an ambassador for the Royal Air Force Benevolent Fund? Tell us about this new campaign uh, that you've well, launched today. I think it's terribly important that we recognise the contribution of all the veterans 
And, you know, and we feel that we, we owe a debt to these people who've served our country and we're trying very hard. We want, we're asking people, if you think you know anybody who might have a connection with the RAF, there might be a chance that we could help if they... they I mean, there are so many things, whether you've got problems with your health, whether you've got financial problems, emotional and... and, and uh, I mean, it's, it's, I've, I've met so many people where the what we now call post-traumatic stress disorder mm -hmm. wasn't known. In the First yeah. World War, you got shot for that. Yeah. And it's surprising how many people, as I've talked to a lot of, of RAF people now, who do find that this can strike you much later, that there are people who have very bad emotional problems. And we've got fantastic counselling services. We've got friendship groups. There's an amazing house which you can go to, which is called the Princess Marina House, which is lovely. It's set on the coast. And so the, the RAF Benevolent Fund is there to help veterans and who may not even know it's there. Well, I'm going to tell you who's eligible. <laughs> that's beautifully put, actually. That's, yeah, that's yeah. right, because the thing is, the people who are eligible are former and currently serving members of the RAF. They're partners, they're dependent children up to 18. Reservists are included, which some people didn't know, and those who, those who completed national service, widows, widowers and former members of the Royal Observer Corps. They're all eligible. And... It's, it, it's just so sad because, you know, the RAF doesn't require veterans to have their details held on a register. So once they leave and they go into civilian life, there's no list. We don't know who they are or where they are. And so we're asking anybody out there who has any connection with people who've been in the RAF who they think might be in trouble in whatever way, had their boilers broken, they can't afford it's it. They can't afford the anything. Yeah. Anything. If they're unhappy... In any way, if they can't afford the rent, if they're lonely, you know, a lot of people, they, they, as they get older, which we all are doing, they lose their partners and suddenly they're, they're finding it difficult to cope at home. They, they, friendship, their friends are going because they're dying. And there's, it, there's a fantastic setup here. I mean, I went to the Princess Marina house unbelievably beautiful. It's like a five star hotel. I've, I've actually been there as it's well. It's gorgeous, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And it was there that I met I met this wonderful veteran, Alan, who's 90, 98, and he'd just had a flight in a Spitfire. And he, he's, he says he's one of the lucky ones because he can still see, he can still hear. And he took me through some of what it felt like because my, my relations wouldn't talk about it. My dad and his two brothers only told me about the fun times when they were on the ground. Completely, yeah. completely. Yeah. Because we were conditioned not to talk not about to things, talk. not and to they, share emotions, stiff it, up you'd a little. And you'd say, weren't you frightened? And they, they wouldn't talk about it. And when I asked Alan, he said, the thing is, of course you were frightened, but we knew we were good at what we did. And you're never going to get an adrenaline rush like that. <laughs> and he I, I, said, I don't like to say this, but I enjoyed the war. I, I'm, I've, heard, I've heard that I've heard, before. I've yeah. heard that before. I'm, I can't think of another charitable organisation that is actively out there begging people not to give, but to actually come and take. It's which the most is... wonderful thing to be able to yes. say. I'm not asking you for money. Of no. course, we're, we're very grateful for any donations, but we have the funds. we just got to find the people. And if you enjoyed all of that, make sure you tune in to The Matthew Wright Show with Kevin O'Sullivan every weekday from 1 on Talk Radio.